the Shadowland podcast. We hope you learn why you're here. Here is your host, J. Michael. Thank you for joining us on Illuminated. I am the Christian nomad, J. Michael. Today we have an amazing interview set up with Ruth Magnuson Davis, author of The Story of the Matthew Bible, that which we first received. Ruth is a retired lawyer and a student of early modern English and the Reformation. In 2009, she founded the new Matthew Bible Project, dedicated to updating the Matthew Bible for today. She began with the New Testament and published it as the October Testament in 2016. Despite spending countless hours in church or even years in ministry, most Christians do not know the fascinating origins of their King James Bible or who died for it. People love the beautiful prose of the King James Bible, but few realize that it is largely drawn from an unknown version the Matthew Bible, published in the previous century. Computer studies show that 83% of the King James New Testament is from the Matthew Bible, as it was originally translated by William Tyndale. The Matthew Bible was published in 1537 during the Reformation. Ruth Magnuson Davis, the author of The Story of the Matthew Bible, that which we first received, says the Matthew Bible is the best-kept secret in Christendom. All of the information that we're going to go over today and all of her books are available at baruchhousepublishing.com. That is Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, housepublishing.com. I am very much looking forward to this interview today, so please welcome to the show Miss Ruth Magnuson Davis. Uh, do I call you Miss Davis or... <laughs> To the, oh, uh, ju- I'm happy if you just call me Ruth, okay, and it's Ruth you. Magnuson Davis. Magnuson. I, I am terrible yes. on names, that, so that's all right. even if you told me, I still probably get it wrong the next time, so I apologize okay. in advance for that. But um, the first thing and that always comes to my mind is just what's the story behind how you came to such a project as this or how you were introduced to the Matthews Bible. Okay, well, I'll try and give you the medium-length story. Um, first of all, I uh, was not raised in a Christian family. I uh, came to faith later in life. My father, though he had been uh, raised in the Anglican Church, became a, a zealous atheist, if you could put it that way. Hmm. Um, I, however, never believed that there was no God. I didn't I didn't accept that, and I and I went on a long search, and I came to faith, although I was actually quite hostile to Christianity um, later on in life. And I had never read a page of the Bible. Um, I had a rather dramatic conversion, uh, accepted that Jesus was the Son of God, and, and I trusted on him and, and was saved. I began to read, uh, I, I began reading the New International Version of the Bible because that was the one that everyone recommended to me. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, for whatever reason that I couldn't explain at the time, I wasn't fully satisfied with it. 
and I read, I, I purchased a lot of different Bible versions. Um, I just kept going until I chanced upon William Tyndale's Modern Spelling the New Testament, which is a book that's being published by David Daniel. Mm. And when I read William Tyndale's New Testament, it was his New Testament of 1534, yeah. I, I realized that I had come to, I'd found what I wanted. This was the fullness of truth. So I read it through, <clears throat> and then I began, I got my hands on everything I could that William Tyndale had ever written. Um, I became very familiar with his thought and with his teaching. And then I discovered uh, the Matthew Bible. I discovered that William Tyndale's New Testament had been brought into a Bible that the Jew referred to, published in 1537, called the Matthew's Bible. I got a copy of a facsimile, which, long story, turned out not to be the Matthew Bible. That's actually part of the story. But um, in the end, I had to buy an actual original rag paper Matthew Bible from 1549, the second printing. And I, as I was reading the Old Testament, I realized that it, too, was so clear and so beautiful. Um, I wanted everyone to have it again. Um, I, a friend of mine actually suggested that I update the English in the Matthew Bible, in William Tyndale's New Testament, which I thought was a ridiculous idea. Although I am a graduate of languages for my study. In university, I had a major in French and before I went on to law school. Um, and I loved grammar. I'm a real grammar nerd. Not a but, Nazi, uh, but a nerd. Huh? A no, nerd. No, yeah. 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 And uh, anyway, long story short, after several years of praying about it, I did come. I, I, I felt called to do this work, um, which is mainly the work of updating, gently updating as minimally as I could the 1537 Matthew Bible, so that people could have it again. So I left my law practice in 2009 and undertook the work full-time. Hmm. Okay, well, um, that's, that is that uh, you know, one of those things where it kind of reminds me of a lot, a very common story where <clears throat> it almost sounds like at first, you know, you, you pushed it off, you know, sort of thing. You didn't necessarily want to get involved, but it sort of came at you as being something you couldn't couldn't deny anymore. That, that's actually a very good way of putting it. I really did not want to do it. I felt complete. I was unqualified in every usual sense of the word. Mm -hmm. um, I prayed about it for a lot, for years. Mm -hmm. Um and interestingly, as I was as I was reading and learning and embarking on this, learning what Christianity was all about and going through the various stages, charismatic, Puritan, and then finally landing in the early Reformation with the Matthew Bible, um, I gathered resources, some of which are very useful to me now. And uh, so it's been quite a journey, um, a, a tremendous amount of work. But I, I wouldn't change, trade what I'm doing for anything. So personal. I'll oh, go ahead. Sorry. The other thing I was going to say was too falling into writing the book, the the story of the Matthew Bible, um, that which we first received, which you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I never intended to be a historian. I hated history <laughs> in school, avoided it. But I've ended up 
writing this history book because no, the Matthew Bible is so neglected, it is so unknown. Um, so it's the world's first book that talks about the making of the Matthew Bible, which formed the base of the King James Version, though hardly anybody uh, knows that. Right. Yes, that's uh, very true. Um, I was going to ask uh, just about, so are you, do you see yourself more along the Reformed line in general, for if you were to line, line up in Christianity? Like, you, you think the... Um, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> what I've learned is that a lot of people uh, kind of, as I did for a long time, blend together in their minds the Reformation, the early Reformation period, say from roughly 1516 through to the death of King Edward, and mm -hmm. the Reformed period, which uh, when the, the teachings from Geneva kind of took some prominence. Right. However, they're actually very separate, and mm -hmm. historians, careful historians, do separate the two, and they talk about Reformation theology and Reformed theology. Right. I am solidly in the camp of Reformation theology. Okay. And, and that actually, we should probably talk about what the Matthew Bible actually is. Um, but then it, you know, we can get into uh, the changes that came with the Geneva Bible, which, which is more along the Reformed line. But anyway, to answer your question, yes, I line up more with the teachings of William Tyndale, Martin Luther, uh, John Rogers, and Miles Coverdale, and the, the men of the early Reformation. Right. I just gonna I was gonna make the connection that that might be uh, why it took you so long to make that next step is because those early reformers they took their time on a lot of stuff and you know they they were pretty diligent about the amount of time and the length of time so they moved pretty slow <laughs> and so oh. for you to for you to and I'm sure some of that has to do with you know translating in the bottoms of cellars and you know on the run and stuff but at the same time. I do think at the time when you're facing that much hostility, you choose your words a little more carefully. And so, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with it, but I just thought that was interesting that when you go about that and you're talking about how long it took you to decide to go into it, I'm like, well, that seems about right. <laughs> so we are going to discuss the Matthews Bible and we're going to get into that, but we have a break coming up. If you'd like to hear more about this. All of the information that we're going to go over today and all of her books are available at baruchhousepublishing.com. That is Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, housepublishing.com.
We're back on Illuminated. Thank you very much for joining us. We are still here with author Ruth Magnuson Davis, um, who was just getting into talking about the actual history behind the Matthews Bible itself. So I want to make sure that we give you the floor to, to speak on what you think is the most important aspects of this. So I'm just going to step back and let you let you start where you think you need to start. And uh, I'm just going to, if I have a question or something, I'll, I'll chime in along the way. Okay. Um, well, maybe we should start in the previous century. Okay. Um, actually, maybe we should go back a couple more centuries to the end of the 14th century when John Wycliffe, mm -hmm. who I'm sure everybody's heard about, called the Morning Star of the Reformation, yep. um, translated the Bible from Latin into English. And at that time, the scriptures were laboriously written out by hand because there was no printing press. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, which was then a very powerful, very powerful uh, organization all across Europe, um, protested ferociously against these English scriptures. And uh, they wanted the Bible kept in Latin. And in 1401, in the year 1401, they passed a statute called De Heretico Comburendo, or On the Burning of Heretics. Huh. And under that horrible statute, um, heretics, people who followed the teachings of Wycliffe, um, could be burned alive. And they were. The first burnings occurred that same year. Then in 1408, the authorities passed another statute called the Constitutions of Oxford. And under the Constitutions of Oxford, no one was permitted to translate the Bible into English unless the church authorized it. Unauthorized translators could be burned alive, and they were, and a people who read or even possessed their scriptures could be punished. So that began the persecution of the Lollards, which was really an, a terrible time in the history of England. Right. When William Tyndale was born, and when he was a young man studying at, at Oxford and at Cambridge, those two statutes were still in force in England, and they were still being enforced. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that, I, I love Wycliffe. I have actually, I wrote a book on Wycliffe and the Lollards, and uh, so much so that I actually named my first company that I ever uh, started, the, uh, the Lollards Group. Just uh, oh. out of uh, admiration, because it was just such a different time, and Wycliffe just seemed like he just didn't care. He was one of those people that just didn't care about what people thought about him or what people were saying. He was going to say the truth regardless, and it's something that I struggle with because I'd always had a lot of anxiety. Even as a little child, I was very ang anxiety-ridden, and to the point of giving myself like ulcers and such. As at like seven years old over anxiety. Oh dear. And so when I was reading about that, it just seemed so like I just felt such a, a kinship with this guy who just just didn't seem like he just didn't care. Like he was like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to translate this. You don't like it. Okay. You know, put me under house arrest. Do what you got to do. I'm still going to do what I have, what it is. And he was just so set on doing what what he felt God had called him to do, that nobody was going to stop him. I mean, and that that, that really touched me. 
I can really relate to that because I've had the same thoughts uh, concerning Tyndale. <laughs> because uh, he also loved the truth above all things. Right. Certainly above the praise of men. Mm-hmm. And suffered immensely for it and had a courage and he had a boldness of speaking out. Right. And that boldness of speaking out is something that I don't naturally have. <laughs> and is one of the reasons why I did not feel able to do <laughs> or qualified to do this work. Um, it's very interesting question that one about speaking out the truth mm-hmm. not compromising when you speak it out yep but also knowing when not to cast your pearls before swine um but not denying the lord either right um, yeah it's it's it, it, it it's a huge question right and it's definitely but i I, th- I think the lord must have moved and motivated and given these men great courage when you when you read william tyndale again and again he he says things like i will work as long as the lord um has prescribed for me if he has prescribed for me that i shall die at the stake so shall it be mm-hmm. and his 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 incredible acceptance of 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 this the call that was on his life the lord's sovereignty over it because god did not allow him to complete his translation of the scriptures in fact right and his acceptance of whatever um whatever came to him and his I mean, he says that he expected the authorities to burn his New Testament as soon as it arrived in 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 England, which they did. Um, his incredible understanding and bravery. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Amazing. yeah, and it is. And there's at the same time, you know, again, it's it is always interesting how that you'd said about uh, you know not casting pearls before swine because I was just that was just this morning I was reading uh, Psalm thirty nine. And that's where uh, it's talking about the fact that th- one of the greatest hindrances that that the psalmist was having at the time was controlling his tongue. And he says he decided he made it that he would, you know, ask God for that he would not sin, even in defending the good. So there are times that even when you th- you like, well, I-, I have to defend this or I have to say something because it is good. Sometimes it's not worth it to to speak at that moment sometimes you know holding your tongue again it it lets something ruminate inside of you to an extent that when it does finally come out you've had enough thought behind it i guess that generally it's going to come out better or it's going to mean something more than it would have if you'd just spoken you know right off when you thought it, when you first thought about it but the mm-hmm. but the biggest thing that it does is it creates I tell people all the time, you know, waiting creates character. So the longer you wait, the more character you're going to build with it. So there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, so where did we, we left off with after the persecution of the Lollards. Okay. And then, and when William Tyndale, so, mm-hmm. um, so William Tyndale had to leave England to mm-hmm. do his work. Right. So he went over to the, to the European mainland and he began translating the New Testament, uh-huh. and uh, he published his first New Testament in 1526, and then a revision in 1534, and then his final revision in 1535 before he was captured um, and, and imprisoned. Uh, it, he was in Antwerp in 1534, and that was a really mo- huge, momentous year in for the English Bible, because in that year, there was William Tyndale, Miles Coverdale, 
and John Rogers, three men all together in Antwerp, meeting and working with the scriptures. And those are the three men who gave us the Matthew Bible. Hmm. Right. So, at the time that William Tyndale was working on his translations, Miles Coverdale, um, his name is not nearly as well known um, among Christians, but he's a very important man. Miles mm-hmm. Coverdale was also working on his own Bible translation. Right. He was translating from the German Bibles that had just newly been put out. Right. So, Germ- uh, uh, um, Martin Luther's the German Bible and also the revision of Luther's Bible that had been put out by the Swiss divines from Zurich. So, uh, Coverdale worked with incredible speed, and he actually right. published uh, his uh, his Bible in, in uh, 1535, called right. the Coverdale Bible, and which got over to England and was used in the church by 1536. Um, Tyndale, however, was captured, as I said, in 1535, and he was imprisoned. So, this leads us now to the making of the Matthew Bible, and why it's called what it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. John Rogers took the scripture translations that William Tyndale had been able to complete, which was the New Testament and roughly half of the Old Testament, and put them, gathered them together, and then to, to supply what Tyndale had not been able to complete, he took Miles Coverdale's translation. So the last half of the Old Testament and the Apocryphal translations are from Miles Coverdale's Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. He annotated them. So he put them, drew them together. He added over 2,000 notes, which he drew from Luther and, 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 and Tyndale and various people. Uh, he added a church calendar. He added a kind of a Bible dictionary, call it that. He added a calendar of the age of the earth. It's the first English study Bible. That claim has wrongly been made for the Geneva Bible. That's just not true. The Matthew Bible was actually the first study Bible, annotated with lots of resources. Um, And he printed it and sent it over to England. And um, then I can tell you a little, maybe next, what he, uh, why it's called the Matthew Bible when nobody named Matthew was involved. Right, right. But we'll have to wait until the other side of this break to get that. that's really an interesting story yeah those last words of his Mm -hmm. and we're back on the Shadowlands podcast illuminated with Ruth Magnuson Davis 
and uh, she was just getting ready to talk to us about the Matthews Bible and why it is called that when obviously nobody named Matthew translated it. So as you were saying. Okay, so the dedication to King Henry VIII um, that was at the front of the Matthew Bible was signed by a man named Thomas Matthew. And also the title page of the Matthew Bible says that it was translated diligently out of the tongues by this mysterious Thomas Matthew. Uh, there was no such man. Yeah. It was a pseudonym. Um, and it was a name that John Rogers uh, chose in order to conceal the involvement of William Tyndale. Right. Because William Tyndale at that time was an outlawed translator in England. Uh -huh. And King Henry's mind had been so poisoned against William Tyndale um, that he had banned all of his books and all of his scripture translations. Right. Uh, so the only way that William Tyndale's marvelous translations were going to be admitted into the into the, the country and into the church was if the king did not know that William Tyndale had a part in it. So how he chose Thomas Matthew, we don't know. But obviously, it's the name of two of Jesus' disciples. Right. And I have guessed um, that the T of Thomas stands for Tyndale, and that the M of Matthew stands for Miles Coverdale, but that's just my guess. Right. Yeah, and the fact that they're listed as being a pair uh, at one point with uh, Thomas and Matthew, uh, that definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me when looking back at church history, uh, that a lot of people don't realize the separation between, it's not just that there was a reformation from the Catholic church. There was also reformation once the English church had already broken away that needed to take place. And so by the time we get to this, this time, the Catholic church was a player, but we were actually dealing with the English church being, being an issue. And so, this is very much, oddly enough, very much a an English problem you know, that we're facing. Because the, the, while the Catholic Church would kind of come back in later on, at this point, the big problem was just that. It was the king. It was the king was the problem. The king needed to, to do something to allow us to have a worthy translation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right, and... Well... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, um... Henry VIII, by, by the time Miles Coverdale, um, his, by the time his Bible arrived in England, he had around him people who were very uh, Reformation-minded. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Thomas Cromwell was his chief minister... Right. Uh, Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury and very influential with King Henry. Um, the only one who ever became a favorite of King Henry's who managed to survive and to endure in that king's favor. Right. And he also, uh, Anne Boleyn was also his queen at that time. Uh -huh. And they all pressured him for uh, an English Bible. And uh, I actually, from what I've read of what he's He's written, I believe that he did come to the conclusion that the people should have the Bible in English. And interestingly, this is a good point, um, an interesting point. Um, William Tyndale, when he was, uh, before he was uh, 
garroted and burned at the stake um, is recorded. John Fox recorded him in, in his, his history um, as saying, as offering a prayer to God, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Uh-huh. Now, that was in October of 1536. What Tyndale probably did not know is that England already had her an English Bible by then. And this is something that Bible historians miss. Miles Coverdale's Bible had already been licensed for use in the church and was being purchased by the parishes in use in the churches. So I don't think that William Tyndale was aware that the king had already, in fact, authorized an English Bible uh, in England. Yeah, now that's definitely in a time before the internet. It took a lot longer for things <laughs> to get around. Um, and especially with that, with, with Coverdale, with, with, like you'd said earlier, with the speed that at which he translated which I think he did a very intelligent thing that both, I think, probably led to it being licensed also is that he tra- translating from the German and using a, a language that was already there, it, it not only got that first one out, but most of the royal family spoke German as well because they have that connection to the Germans through, the, through, the, their, through their line. So I'm sure there was ability to, you know, sort of check it. It wasn't going to be an unknown. It wasn't going to be quite like, you know, Tyndale or even the Geneva, where there might be things put in there all of a sudden that, yeah, you know. And and I, my sense is, I love Miles Coverdale's prophets in the Matthew Bible. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love his prophets. Right. And um, I, I have a facsimile of of Martin Luther's fifteen thirty four Bible, but I. I find that old German almost impossible to read. I can, right. you know, kind of barely make it out. But I, I suspect that, or maybe I should even word that more tentatively. I, I wonder if the great clarity of Coverdale's prophets isn't Martin Luther's gift to the English Church. I, I yeah. wish I could read that old German a, a bit better than I can, right. because his his prophets are the best. Right. Yeah. It's definitely. Um... There is definitely something to that. And again, with German being so heavily influencing English at the time, you can understand why when translating between back and forth between the two, there would be a certain amount of clarity there between, you know, sis- sort of sister languages that, that share mm-hmm. a lot of commonality. Um, so getting back to um, just the king and everything and the people that were around him at the time it's interesting cromwell i had read a hit uh, something on him years ago and i always felt like he was he seemed one of those guys that again was kind of he seemed a little pushier than what i would think he would be for the position that he was in like he seemed like you know, most people when you go in front of the king especially in those times you're expected to fall on the ground and be and he just seemed like he had a certain he stood a certain ground a certain way that wasn't necessarily common. And so, again, it's one of those things, sometimes I wonder if if where a sovereign might see somebody stand their ground and might that might, they might have a little respect for him, even if they're upset at him. You know, it's almost like, well, you can be angry at the guy, but you can't, you can't, uh, you know, fault his heart, you know? <laughs> are, are, you, are you kind of wondering about how it was that Thomas Cromwell came so much into the king's favor there. Right, yeah, ex- exactly. I, I've, 
I, I've read a lot of different things about Cromwell, not in depth. Um, my impression is that there's a lot of falsehood out there about the man. And mm-hmm. one, of, one of the things that I've, uh, I've had to narrow my reading, and I've had to choose the historians that I trust. Mm-hmm. I and one of that. the historians that I trust, because they disagree with each other, and there's so much slander, especially God's servants are going to be slandered more than anyone else. There's going to be a lot of falsehood put out there by the enemy. Right. Um, and um, I trust John Fox. And I didn't come to that easily because he has been discredited by so many other historians. But that discrediting, I believe, is the enemy turning us away from the truth. John Fox is not the huge Puritan that he is painted out to be. In fact, he criticized the radical Puritans. Right. Um, His huge, voluminous work is is incredibly valuable, is full of, of... of the uh, reprintings of actual official documents. And if you want to understand what, what has happened, you need to go back to the source and see what it says, not what somebody else says it says. Right. Um, and other historians, um, Mosley, for example, says that he's gone back and he's checked John Fox's records against the originals, and they're accurate. Now, Fox did make mistakes. I, I myself have seen some mistakes, and I don't have the knowledge that Mosley had. Right. But... Um, when I read John Fox's long stories about Thomas Cromwell, I fell in love with Thomas Cromwell. Right, right. He, 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 uh, um, he apparently had very magnetic qualities. Right. Um, and he did draw people to himself. He was brilliant. When he was taken down, John Fox says he was taken down by malicious, false uh, accusations from the from Roman Catholic enemies and people are around the king. Um, he was accused of tampering with the books and various things, but after his death, uh, it was discovered that he had not done so, according to John Fox, whom I believe. Right. And the king, reg- the king regretted what he had done. Um, I got a whole chapter on Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cranmer in my book, The Story of the Matthew Bible, because those two men, along with the three men who, who wrote along with Rogers, Tyndale, and Coverdale, those five men all together, I call them the soldiers mm-hmm. for the English Bible. They, working together, are the ones who gave England her English Bible.
we're back with our author and our diligent uh, updater of the Matthews Bible, Ruth Magnuson Davis. And I was just going over in my head because we'd been talking about, you know, obviously official translations and licensed translations of the Bible. Um, I do want to ask, you know, the question about that is if so much of the English Bible all goes back to this Tyndale, how is it that, you know, nobody understands that? Nobody hears that today. Nobody, it, there is not even a, like in the preface to the King James, there's not even a mention of those who came before. There's no specific mention, yeah. You know, I've asked myself that question. I think that as time went on, the reason for that developed. Um, by the time we got to the King James Version, there had already been quite a few hands on the Matthew Bible. Maybe we should just go back to the Matthew Bible and explain how it was that it entered into the stream okay. and became the base of the King James Version. Okay. But what happened was, uh, after the Matthew Bible uh, was licensed for use in the English Church, the Roman Catholics were agitating against it. And so in order to bring peace and hopefully settle an English Bible in the church once and for all, because it was still on shaky ground, and, and King Henry VIII was a mercurial man, Right. Uh, Thomas Cromwell commissioned a revision of the Matthew Bible. So he chose the Matthew Bible to be serve as the base for an official Bible, and for it to be revised in such a way that it would hopefully make the Roman Catholics happy. Right. Yeah, so the idea was to get rid of the notes and commentaries because they couldn't. There, there was nothing really offensive. There was nothing anti-Rome or anti-papal that came with the Geneva version. Sometimes I think Roman Catholics maybe regretted that they didn't put a copy of the Matthew Bible in every home. Right. <laughs> but they fought against it, and um, so it was revised. The notes were cut out, and there were certain revisions made. So, for example, there were. Uh, uh, certain old familiar verses in the Latin Bible that uh, had been uh, omitted from the, Ma from the Matthew Bible because they were considered later additions into the text, they were added back in. And those are actually quite innocuous. Um, there were also some changes to, to some of the translations to follow the interpretation of the Latin Bible. I particularly have found that in the Old Testament. Right. And there was more literalism. So, the Matthew Bible was revised, and then it was went by the name the Great Bible. The it's Great also Bible. sometimes called Cromwell's Bible or Cranmer's Bible. Those are the different names for it. Right. It was light, published uh, in 1539. So, the Matthew Bible was only around for two years before it was effectively shoved aside. Right. The right. Great Bible then served as the Bible in the church uh, for, uh, for a couple of decades. However, the Puritans did not like the Matthew Bible either. Um, they didn't like Tyndale's translations, and they didn't like uh, the Great Bible. They objected to the church calendar in the Great Bible, and right. in the Matthew Bible, they objected to some that the uh, they objected like the Roman Catholics. They objected to the translation of Ecclesia by congregation. All right. the Reformation. All the Reformation Bibles translated Ecclesia by congregation. So, Coverdale, the Matthew Bible, and the Great Bible all used congregation. 
the Geneva the, the Geneva Bible was translated by Puritans. When I use the word Puritan, I use that in the classic sense. Right. Men who wanted to purify the church. Right. They had a post-millennial vision for the church. This is one of the differences between the early Reformation and Reformed influences. Right. They had a post-millennial vision for the church. They believed that the prophecies of the Old Testament promised that the church would be restored after the beast from Rome, Church of Antichrist, um, would be exposed and destroyed. And then the new church, which they would build, uh, would uh, spread glory on the earth. Right. So that, that was supposed to, So in order to buttress that, they put the word church back into the scriptures. So already we see her two, two huge departures from early Reformation um, teaching. If you look at the Geneva Bible notes on Matthew 16, you'll see that it took back the authority of Peter's of the keys, Peter's keys for the church. Right. Or Tyndale, it's clear that those keys belong to all true believers. Right. Many departures. Right. So, so the Geneva, the Puritans came along and they took Tyndale's New Testament, they revised it, and then they took the Old Testament from the uh, Great Bible and they revised it. They made massive revisions through the text and they added back thousands of notes. Their notes are ten times the number of notes that were in the Matthew Bible, is my guess. Right. So that Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bible of the Puritans, became very influential in England. Yeah. It was published in small volumes, uh, brought it into their homes, and um, the teachings set people against the English church. Right. Um, Which I think set, was the point. Agreed. That was the whole point. Right. Um, because as soon after uh, Queen Mary died and, and the Puritans came back from Geneva, they began their agitations. They published their manifestos. They published their admonitions to Parliament. They moved for uh, votes in convocation. They, um, they 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 started with an attack on externals, ceremonies, vestments, that sort of thing. Right. They moved to an they moved to an attack on the prayer book, and an attack on the, the polity of the episcop the episcopacy, the, the governance of the church. Right. Um, that and their their the Bible that Bible was one of the weapons in their arsenal because they needed to build they they were very zealous about building the church their way. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's well. I mean. Yeah. The, the that's that's why. And this is it's kind of funny. I have a a weird relationship with the Puritans because I think in some ways they were just absolutely ridiculous. Like, you'll hear stories about how there were arguments about whether or not they should sand the benches in the in the uh, congregational meetings because one of them argued that the splinters would be God's way of, of like, toughening up the crowd and stuff. So, I mean, like, it was absolutely crazy, you know, well, some of the and things. They went, to, they went around <laughs> kind of like the Muslims do, smashing crosses and smashing church organs right, and that right. sort of thing. So I really questioned the spirit that was behind that. Right, the iconoclasm really did reach a fever pitch at places, and then you know it's yeah, it's it is there is they're definitely a rowdier bunch than I think we give them credit for as far as especially their activity. You you think of them as sitting alone in a with a candle praying, and I think they're a lot more active than we would give I them credit. I think their their history is is has been forgotten, uh, yeah. largely forgotten. 
But anyway, so their Bible created so much trouble in the church mm-hmm. that Queen Elizabeth decided that she was going to make her own Irenicon. Like the Great Bible was the first Irenicon. It was the first, you know, Irenicon being a thing that's designed to bring peace. Right. So the Great Bible was to bring peace with the Roman Catholics. The Bishop's Bible was then commissioned by Queen Elizabeth to bring peace with the Puritans. So the Matthew Bible was squeezed between the Roman Catholics and the Puritans. Right. So the Bishop's Bible came along. Now, the Bishop's Bible was a further revision of the Great Bible, but the Geneva Bible had its influence. The Bishop's Bible did not bring peace, and by the time King James came to the throne, the agitations were more severe and more serious, and he gave us the third Irenicon. Right. This Bible also designed to bring peace with the Puritans, if possible, and it was another compromise Bible. Right. Um, the uh, Influence of the Puritans in that uh, Bible is incredible. Yeah. Uh, You can prove it just by, you know, tracking the verses. However, with all of that, uh, computer studies have shown that William uh, William Tyndale's words still comprise 83% of the New Testament of the King James Bible. So his voice is still speaking down to us. Um, through the ages, God has preserved that fine wine. So, eighty-three. The New Testament is still eighty-three percent Tyndale. That's what I call the best kept secret in Christendom. And the Old Testament, as to Tyndale's portion, I think it's uh, is it seventy-two or seventy-five percent William Tyndale. So there are more changes in the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. still, um, the the fact that you know. The, the, the Matthew Bible base is still there. Nobody has measured what, what happened with Miles Coverdale's scriptures is part of the Old Testament. Um, I think that uh, his scriptures were changed more drastically. Um, that's just my, my, the impression that I have from comparing the Bibles. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. Well, that uh, sound means that we're coming up to another break and we will continue this discussion over on the other side. All of the information that we're going to go over today and all of her books are available at BaruchHousePublishing.com. Stay tuned.
And we're back on Illuminated with our author, Ruth Magnuson Davis, who has gently updated the Tyndale uh, New Testament and now has written the book about the history of the Matthews Bible. The book has just recently come out. It's called The Story of the Matthew Bible, That Which Was First Received. That Which We First Received. And so... We were discussing about how that the new, the King James is about 80, in the New Testament especially, is about 85% the original Tyndale. And, you know, I like to, when, when I go through history, I always like to point out that in its own time, back in the 1600s, the King James really didn't pick up like the Geneva Bible did. The Geneva really stuck around with the people. The people seemed to really accept it, but not really the King James. You know, the, the Geneva was what sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and settled settled the colonies. And I just, you know, I, I was curious of your opinion, why you think that is? What, what happened there with that? Well, you know, I'm still exploring that question. And um, I, I've been learning... The, the Puritan history has been quite a journey because I originally would have called myself a Puritan. And it was only when I began to compare translations that I began to realize the large, the, the huge differences. And um, so my study is still, I, I would call it preliminary. It's, it's going to be, I'm researching it right now for part two of the story of the Matthew Bible, because part one of the book was the history of the making talks about the three men getting together in Antwerp, the Bible coming over to England, and, and all that. Part two is tracking what happened with the scriptures from the original through the Great Bible, the Geneva Version, and the King James. I, the people, a lot of the people did love the Geneva Bible, and it, it had great influence with them. And I there was a power to the teachings of the Puritans. Um, I they 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 were, I'm coming to realize that they were revolutionaries, and they had certain things in common with all revolutionaries. Um, zeal, uh -huh. um, confidence, uh -huh. a willingness to speak out, and utopian promises, yeah. and, uh, you know, promises of a great future to come. Um, they created a, a superstit. People became very superstitious and fearful about the ceremonies of the English Church. They built on the truth, which about the evil in the Roman Catholic Church, which was an inward evil. Right. And they fastened it on externals, ceremonies, vestments, organs, candles, things that don't matter because God works. God looks to the heart. Right. But they created a reverse superstition. So where the Roman Catholic Church had been superstitious about its ceremonies in a good way. Puritans became superstitious about ceremonies in a bad way. And simple people are deceived by that sort of thing. Um, they agitated. King James Bible did not bring the peace that it was intended to bring. Right. People still wanted the Geneva Version. And the agitations, political agitations became so fierce that it ended in the English Revolution, the beheading of King Charles, the beheading of Archbishop Laud, and that period in English history known as the Interregnum, when the Puritans took rule. They made Christmas illegal, they outlawed, outlawed organs in the churches, 
they put people in jail for, for celebrating Christmas. They mm-hmm. so hated the church calendar. Um, right. However, that period did not last long. And then the restoration came and the king came back to the throne. The Puritans had lost the battle. Right. They left England then presenting themselves as the persecuted. Mm-hmm. And they came and they came over to America to set up here. Right. And they brought their Bible with them. And they were going to set they were going to my my understanding is they were going to build their church and their theocracy here. They passed very harsh laws. Yeah. Just I think it was October the twenty seventh marked the anniversary of their execution of two Quaker men in their Massachusetts colony. Wow. Um so It's an appeal based on superstition and based on false promises. That's my honest opinion. That's my honest conclusion, and a lot of people are not going to like that. Right. But that's the the conclusion that I've come to. Yeah, I can see that. And so the staying power of the King James compared to the Geneva, you think that that might be partially attributed to the quality of the translation even, you know, the translation going back to Tyndale, what he started with, you know, that, that, that when sort of the, 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 everything around it sort of fell away, the Bible was left sort of lacking a little bit. And so people gravitated to, you know, something that maybe was a better translation. Well, I understand that, um, and I read somewhere just recently, and this is a part of history that I haven't yet verified, but that King James actually had to pass a law requiring that his that, that Bible be used and not the James, or, or somebody pass a law to that effect. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that, but certainly the King, I think it was the King James Version was a very wise move by the King, because to have the scriptures stripped of all those notes, right. because the Geneva notes were very incendiary, um, not all of them, but, but enough of them. Right. That, that it was problematic. And so to have the scriptures stripped of those notes was probably a, a good thing. And there was enough of the Matthew Bible scriptures left that God could God used the King James Bible mightily for centuries. Right. And so that takes us back to, you know, the the Matthew's Bible and just sort of why the Matthew's Bible? You know, what what is, what makes it different? What makes it different for you? I mean, what is the thing? What is the thing that you know when you look at it, you say that's that's the you know that is a that's your Bible. Let alone that's the Bible that you know you think is translated as well. Well, there is just the, the subjective aspect of my having loved it and found the fullness of truth in it. Uh, the the teachings of Christ as the Son of God, who's declared by the preaching of the Word, is very powerful in it the sweet exhortations to righteous and holy living, the focus on inward things as opposed to outward things. Um, But then just looking at it objectively, uh, what makes it different, it's the only English Bible that was bought with blood. It's the only English Bible that men died for to give us. It's sealed with blood. Tyndale and John Rogers also were burned at the stake. And that is God's way to seal his true testimonies with blood. And we see that all through this, the Old Testament and the New Testament and the New Testament age. The other thing is, which I believe is very important, it was written by men outside the camp. When I say outside the camp, I mean outside the church. Right. They were not, they were not answering to any political authority. 
or any ecclesiastical authority. They were answering to the Holy Spirit and conscience only. Every Bible since has been a church Bible um, commissioned for political purposes. And, and I'm not saying that wasn't necessary because it was, but it, it, it has its obvious effect. There's compromise involved. There's bowing to outside influences. Um, yeah. Jesus died outside the camp. His apostles died outside the camp. And we receive the Matthew Bible in the same way from men who are outside the camp. Right. And any time, I mean, let's face it, it is what it is. The church has done a lot of good, but at the same time, it's a bureaucracy. And as soon as you get multiple voices in, somebody's going to have an agenda. So. It, exactly. And Tyndale called that playing boo peep. Mm. I've actually written a, a blog um, post on that recently on my website, baruchhousepublishing.com. Uh, just to give a plug, yep. uh, Baruch is B-A-R-U-C-H, housepublishing.com, and I've done a blog on that. William Tyndale specifically said, don't take my scriptures, change it, and call it a correction, because then you're playing boo-peep with my words. <laughs> I understand that by that he means his thoughts, his words are going to be going in and out um, with other people's words. And the truth, the truth is compromised, and his message is impaired through that. Um, the, um, but the Geneva Bible, if you read the preface, they specifically said that they were correcting the former translations, and they played boo-peep with right. the Matthew Bible scriptures. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us here today. Again, the author that we are speaking to is Ruth Magnuson Davis. You can get all of her information about everything she's done at Baruch House Publishing, that is B-A-R-U-C-H, HousePublishing.com, BaruchHousePublishing.com. Where can people find you online? Like, are you Twitter, Facebook, anything like that? Um, they can get hold of you. Uh, I, well, I have a page on Facebook, uh, Baruch House Publishing. I, I am on Twitter. I'm not very active on it. Um, but yes, I am on Facebook and Twitter. We also have a, a website called NewMatthewBible.org. And there are sample scriptures there. People can see uh, how we've gently updated uh, Tyndale's uh, New Testament. I think the Gospel of Matthew is on there, and the Book of Romans is on there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's more information about the New Matthew Bible Project and about the October Testament. Um, we called, as I think you mentioned, we called our update of the New Testament. We called it the October Testament. Right. Um, yeah, I actually just I read the entire First uh, Corinthians on there as well, and it was very lovely, very very well done, absolutely. And so, like I said, thank you very much for coming thank in. Much. Thank you for you know taking the time out, and we will be back on the other side of this to uh, wrap up the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. I'm convinced. <laughs> Ruth Magnuson Davis, the author of The Story of the Matthew Bible, 
that which we first received. I am definitely looking forward to getting to read this. Uh, it's a pretty quick turnaround, so I didn't get to read it. I just got to read excerpts, but I will definitely be reading this. And I definitely have a copy of the October Testament coming in the mail. I don't like to read books and such on a tablet. I prefer to feel the paper. I definitely look forward to this. As you can tell, Ruth is very passionate about this, very knowledgeable about this. She comes to it from the perspective of wanting to know the truth, wanting knowledge, that knowledge is always a good thing. I try to explain this to people all the time, that what you know is based in fact, in reality, on truth, then you can listen to anything anyone has to say and garner the truth from it. And I have an open mind that if you say something that I've never thought before, I'll definitely consider that. But you'll never know if you're not willing to listen to opinions, to listen to things, and to really dig down and study. I try to learn something new every single day. And that's what our word of today is, is knowledge. The word knowledge. I have a dictionary definition here of knowledge. It says, the acquaintance with facts, truth, or principles. This is the important thing for knowledge. First of all, we can't live in this postmodern, your truth, my truth, what is truth, we can all say truth stuff. You turn it on the any of the cable news and you will see that in effect. The person sitting there talking to you is lying to your face about what they're talking about. But you know what? They're okay with it because it's their truth. It's their truth that they're telling you. And therefore, they can claim another person is lying, even though they're telling the truth. But see, their truth isn't my truth. And as long as their truth doesn't line up with my truth, they're lying. That's not, that is not truth. There is an objective truth out there. And we can find it. But we have to acquire knowledge. Acquire knowledge of things you don't want to. Acquire knowledge of things that go against what you would prefer. There are things in the Bible I would prefer not be in the Bible, but they're there. And I can't ignore them and claim that they're not there or act like they're not there. They are there. Now what do you do with it? There are more responses here. Interestingly enough, the archaic term for knowledge is sexual intercourse. I say that, I, I think that's funny because if you look up the origin of the word, it comes from the Middle English word of knowledge, which basically equates to to get to know something, you know, to have an understanding of something or to be with something. And then the word, word lecce, which you could also be lector, which probably comes from the Old Norse, which means wedlock. So it was act, the word knowledge actually has a sexual connotation to it. It means to know somebody after being married to them. 
Well, that's knowing somebody in the biblical sense. The thing is, while that may be an ar archaic, it shows the complexity of a word. It shows a word like knowledge means something, and you have to, to search it out. It can mean the sum of what is known. You have a knowledge, a great knowledge. Well, a knowledge of what? Of, of the vastness of a multitude of things. It can mean a body of truth or facts that you have accumulated over a course of time. You can know of somebody. You can know a behavior. You can know, a th you know of an incident. Have knowledge of that thing. Why? Because you're accumulating facts and truth over a period of time. It can, knowledge can just mean something that is or may be known. It's just something that can be known. So we need to be aware of what is going on so we can know what we don't know. Because the worst thing in the world is to not know something and not know that you don't know something. I became so much more knowledgeable the moment I realized what I don't know. When you are willing to sit down with somebody who you completely disagree with in almost everything and say, tell me what you know, because I want to know it, because they might have something that you don't, they might understand something that you don't understand yet. And so while you disagree with them, getting to know what they know will help you understand either one, why it is that you disagree with them. Or two, that you may not be as different as you think. Knowledge. It's an awareness, as in an awareness of circumstances. Meaning you can just be, you just have a knowledge of somebody's being. You just know that a circumstance exists. You don't have to say that you agree with what people say is the reason why there's poverty. But you can know that there is poverty. You don't have to agree with the reason why people claim cops shoot people, but you can acknowledge that cops do shoot people. You can acknowledge the circumstance exists without having to say that you agree with it. It also means to have, be an acquaintance or have a familiarity with something that is gained by sight or experience, meaning to know something is because you actually went through it. You it, Now, again, people will say things such as that, you know, oh, it's anecdotal. Okay, fine, it's anecdotal, but you can know something by going through it. You know water is wet. Why? Because you've been wet before. You know the sun's bright. Why? Because you walk outside and you see it. There are things we know because we can experience them. But you can never experience them if you're not willing to step outside of your comfort zone. You have to put yourself out there. I probably listen to more people I disagree with than I agree with because I want to know what is out there to be known. Every day, try to learn one thing. To have knowledge also could just mean... That you have a familiarity with one particular subject. If you can only know one thing really well, 
do it. That is great. Know that one thing as well as you can. I personally like knowing a little about a whole lot of things and a lot about just a few things. But the most important of all of these is the acquaintance with facts and truth or principles. You have to be principled. The Constitution is wholly inadequate to govern an unprincipled people. You cannot live by the word of God, by the Ten Commandments, if you are not a principled person. You need to study. You need to investigate. You need to spend time on something. You need to form principles based on truth, on fact, on the things that we can know. Because to be completely honest with you, greatest thing in life is being well informed and making your decisions, making your thoughts and patterns in life based upon knowledge. The knowledge that what you're doing is right. I pray that God blesses every single one of you who hear this today. And if there's anybody listening to this who is an atheist, who doesn't know, who doesn't believe, or is a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, anything else, I want you to know that there is truth out there. There is objective truth that you can find. There is a truth that can live inside of all of us. And he has a name. He has a name. May you seek the name that is above all names. And may you grow in knowledge and live in love. Until next time, God bless you all. Thank you for joining us. Come again.